Welcome to Ask the Educator, a podcast brought to you by Healthmark Industries. Are you a sterile processing technician or manager? Maybe you work in infection prevention or biomedical engineering. Whether you're a frontline tech, endoscopy tech, OR nurse, or surgical services administrator, you undoubtedly have influence in medical device processing at your facility. In each episode, we speak with experts from the Healthmark Clinical Affairs team, industry leaders, or special guests from the trenches to answer your questions and bring you relevant industry information, equipping you for excellence in medical device processing. My name is Kevin Anderson, and I will be your host. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ask the Educator podcast. My name is Adam Okada. Kevin Anderson could not be here with us today, so I'm going to fly solo here with our presenter from the September Healthmark webinar, which is Dr. Daniel Lightfoot. And he talked to us about ultrasound probes. So that's what we're going to cover here today as well. Uh, Dr. Lightfoot, thank you. Welcome in. All right. Thank you for welcoming me, Adam. Great to work with you. So we're going to jump in here to some uh, just basically recapping the podcast or the sorry, recapping the webinar uh, that you just finished. And so for those who weren't able to attend, let's start with the background of the Spalding classification scale, uh, just kind of the history of it and how it applies to ultrasound probes. Yeah, Spalding is pinnacle. It's the cornerstone of infection prevention. And what what Spalding did, it's been almost 50 years since it was first conceived and written, is he looked at biological pathogenic infections and wanted to come up with a way of addressing infection prevention and disinfection of reusable devices or just devices in general that are used in a healthcare setting. And taking the culmination of biology, cell biology, immunology, um, medical practice, pathology, he distilled it down to this very simple three-step paradigm that's correlated to exposure and or risk of exposure. And so it's a three-step process of non-critical, semi-critical, and critical, and that correlates to a low risk to the patient, a high risk to the patient, and critical risk to the patient. And all of this is, is based on the idea that our skin is our biggest protector towards infection. It's our barrier to our external environment. And if our if that barrier is robust and strong, then the risk to us is, is low. And so the low level of disinfection is required. If that barrier is damaged, compromised in any way, so you start thinking about rashes. Now that that barrier, our protectorant is against, is, is weakened in some fashion, it's compromised in fashion. Well, now the risk of infection is high. And so any device that's touching that should be high level disinfected. And if, it, and if anything touches when our skin is absent, which sounds peculiar, but if our skin is absent, what that means is your steel tissue is directly exposed to the external environment. So you have direct entry from whatever is on the outside to the inside. And that's critical. And in that case, anything that's touching sterile tissue should be sterilized, which is removal of all life, destruction of all life. You're further complicating this because it this, the scale itself is relatively simple, but we know that there are things that kind of kind of go in the gray lines, right? And one of these things was percutaneous procedures. So can you give a little more information about what a percutaneous procedure is and how they can sometimes complicate things? Yeah, so percutaneous is anything that's going through the skin. You know, an older term is transcutaneous. And so this procedure, these group of procedures have really proliferated and for good reason in the medical industry, because it allows us to access tissue beneath the skin without opening the patient up. So the alternative to a percutaneous procedure is a surgery. So now you're opening a patient up. Now you have this wide corridor of exposure to the external environment compared to a very narrow one, which you'd see in a puncture site. And because of its great utility and its ease and its 
invasiveness, um, lack of invasiveness that it's been adopted in all different, in many different areas of medical practice. And so one of the things that have also developed is when ultrasound was introduced in a clinical setting, these two came together where ultrasound guided needle procedures greatly improved the medical outcomes. Before it was kind of like a hunt and poke. <laughs> and so there was, you know, good things and bad things associated, but with needle guidance, it's very, very precise. And in the good hands with a good eye, you can do some amazing things. And so percutaneous procedures is that group of procedures where it's ultrasound guided and you have a needle. Now, what's what caused some of the confusion around this space is that people are focusing on the procedure and not what's actually happening. Now, go back to Spalding, and Spalding is about transference of pathogens is by touch. And so whatever the transducer is touching discerns its level of disinfection. So if the transducer is touching non-intact skin, I mean, and touching intact skin, well, that's a low risk for the patient, therefore low level of disinfection. If it's touching, um, if the transducer is touching a mucous membrane or non-intact skin, well, then you need a heightened level of um, protection. And so that's high level of disinfection. And then if the transducer is directly touching sterile tissue, then the situation is critical or the procedure is critical and then it requires sterilization. And so because the transducer can transcend all three categories of spalding, it causes some confusion to the end user because that same transducer in a single day can be used for a non-critical in the morning, a critical in the afternoon, a semi-critical right after, back to non-critical. And so the disinfection process that needs to be applied is different prior to each patient use. And because of that, it's caused a little confusion. It's a little more complicated than take, for example, transvaginal probes, which are all, all touch mucus-bearing membranes and should, should all be high-level disinfection. It's very simple, very simple to address. You know, every time you, before you use it, you high-level disinfect it, so it's straightforward. With surface transducers and percutaneous procedures, it's just more complicated. And that's, you know, that's one thing that's really fascinating about your talk was you really went into depth about um, the percutaneous procedures and all the various ways that those really can be addressed. I mean, I think you said 140 different kinds of procedures and and just a lot of different things that we have to think about. So how, how could we as users on the user side, how do we know when we need to HLD or low level or or sterilize something? Uh, because usually they just come back to us in the same fashion every single time. It's interesting. One of the puzzling things about ultrasound transducers for me is that when you go into the OR, these questions aren't asked. So when you go into the OR, they realize that we don't know what's going to walk through that door. <laughs> exactly. Um, or in the ER, and therefore they prepare. So they sterilize all the equipment, they prep for equipment. For some reason with ultrasound, there seems to be a different way of thinking not to apply the same standards as you'd see in other areas of the hospital. And so Spalding applies to all areas of the hospital. And so for knowing what to do is just preparation. So I've seen different workflows and it takes a, a multidisciplinary group within a hospital because it's going to take all the stakeholders. So the user, the doctor, the reprocessor, SPD, you know, what makes the most sense? How can you be both compliant to Spalding and federal guidelines and, 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 and IFUs all towards protecting the patient while still maintaining a viable workflow in a clinical setting? And I've seen some wonderful answers, you know, going around from different hospitals around the U.S. And I found that they have the ones that do sit down and come up with the good policies and procedures. They actually are doing more as far as achieving traceability, 
getting the probes um, disinfected appropriately. And then it's just more clear once it's thought through and explained to staff, and then everybody's on board. They go get it. We, we're we in the healthcare facility and we're in the healthcare profession because we want to help people. We want to protect people. We want to heal people. And once they find out that they might not be doing the best thing, they might not have known. And then once you get them on track and then point them in the right direction and go, here's what you need to consider. It just takes a little preparation in the front end just like you would in an OR. There's a lot of prep work before that patient walks through in an OR. There's prep work before a patient walks into the ER, more of a surprising um, setting in the ER. But with ultrasound, it's the same. It's no different. It's just taking that preparation, knowing that, hey, we're going to do this procedure um, and also taking other precautions into consideration. I mean, is is the patient immunocompromised? Is, is a burn? If you go to a NICU, they're high level disinfecting generally everything because they're not going to risk such a fragile life and, and you know, transferring a pathogen is something that's so fragile. They're trying to just keep that baby alive. And you also see it in burn units and also in oncology units as well, where patients are immunocompromised. And so there's a greater sense of attention towards infection prevention. It's not required under Spalding, depending on some of the procedures that they're doing, but they're taking that next step. So it's just a lot of front-end work. Yeah. And no one size fits all solution, right? You just have to do that, that research to do, to know what you're doing. And you kind of talked about the, the AIU or AUIM, is that the group? <laughs> I forget, uh, the inter societal statement, uh, that they had on the disinfection of ultrasound probes used in, uh, the percutaneous procedures. Can you talk a little bit about that statement, what it said, and then, um, you know, your thoughts on it? Yeah. So that statement, there's a bit of a history. It's the second iteration of it. The first iteration didn't garner much attention. In the second iteration, there's just a lot more oomph put behind it. But what, what the um, AUM statement, the intracidal statement on per- ultrasound, disinfection of ultrasound transducers and percutaneous procedures states is that these transducers only require low-level disinfection, which means they're being classified as non-critical under Spalding. When you think about it, there's over 140 different procedures that we annotated. And there's still more because that didn't include ophthalmology, dentistry, periodontistry, and other fields of medicine. We just looked at the hospital proper. So to declare that all of them are non-critical preemptively is a bit hard to intellectually grasp. Second, it's not the name that discerns Spalding. It's what the transducer touches that discerns Spalding. And Spalding correlates, again, to your level of disinfection. So what that transducer touches discerns is its disinfection. And with the prevalence of ultrasound, the prevalence of percutaneous procedures across so many different fields of medicine, we see transducers directly placed on the eyeball. This You see, I showed an image of cataract surgery um, in a webinar. You see one where there is an oral, they were draining an abscess at the back of a man's throat using a transvaginal probe for needle guidance. That's a mucus bearing membrane as well. Um, and then you also see burn, you know, these transducers being applied to burn victims. And so when you start going down the list, as well as touching sterile tissue um, or touching an intervening sterile device, now in those two points, it's very clear from federal guidance that if it's anything that touches, anything sterile needs to be sterile. We all understand that. And if the ster- if it touches the sterile needle and it's not sterile, then that needle is not sterile and federal guidance says it needs to be sterile. Why? Because you're directly touching sterile tissue. And then also you're touching the wound directly. It's a small wound. It's not a large wound, but it's still a wound. It's in pathway. And when, when pathogens are microns in size, a needle puncture is a highway for them to get in. So, you know, it's a matter of perspective. Finally, you know, it's against Spalding. And so you, it's a position that's very peculiar because they've taken a stand 
and it's their medical opinion. They've taken a stand and basically said that Spalding's not correct, the FDA is not correct, the CDC is not correct, Amy's not correct, TJC is not correct, the World Health Organization. I mean, they kind of they kind of got the gambit, um, and they said, "Listen to us." Now, I'd also remind people of the TJC hierarchical standards and guidelines. Well, AOM is just a society which is at the lowest rung of external guidance. And above that, you have Amy, TJC, CDC, and way above everybody is is federal guidance. And the cornerstone of everything is Spalding. And so to go against everything, it's a very, very peculiar position to be medically. Um, I've not quite understood it. Um, and so anybody that, any facility that adopts AUM as their policy is both risking the patient and, you know, if they are TJ accredited, they're risking accreditation. Yeah, it's an incredibly complex issue there, right? But it really, it's all about the patient. We're trying to do what's best for the patient. And again, there's no one-size-fits-all solution here. So uh, if you guys have not seen the webinar, I would encourage you to go check it out. It's called The Best Practice in Reprocessing Ultrasound Probes uh, with Dr. Daniel Lightfoot. Any uh, final thoughts you want to leave us with uh, before we adjourn for the day? No, you said something that's very prescient. And all of this, the reason why we have Spalding, the reason why we have federal guidance, the reason why we have organizations like TJC and Amy is to find the best pathway forward for best practices for the patient. It's all designed to help the patient. So when you adopt your policies and procedures and you apply them clinically, the best thing you could ever do is what's best for the patient. And we're all in this business, in this field of, of medicine, um, all towards that goal. Put that first, and you'll generally land on the right spot. Well said, sir. All right, we're going to adjourn for the day, but thank you, Dr. Daniel Lightfoot, for joining us here today. And thank you for doing our webinar for the month of September. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. Uh, we'll see you on the next podcast. All opinions expressed on this show are those of the presenters. Before using any medical device, it is important to review the device manufacturer's instructions for use.